Welcome back to a brand new episode of The Walter Show. Or actually, this is part two of a two-part episode with the co-founder and CEO of Epidemic Sound, Oscar Höglund. And if you haven't listened to the first part yet, I suggest you go back and listen to that part first, because in that part we cover all the background and Oscar's career and, and all kinds of amazing stuff that I really enjoyed talking to him about. And in this second part, we're going to focus on epidemic sound. And that is also fascinating stuff. We're at a point where our music is being played 40, 50 billion times a month across the internet. But we're now seeing a scenario where we believe that we can help soundtrack the world. So this is a great episode. I picked this as the premiere episode for a reason. And I think you will like it. So this is part two with Oscar Höglund. Tell me about Epidemic Sound. Epidemic Sound was born a little more than 10 years ago. And it came from a number of different places. So on the one hand, it was very much based on inspiration. We're five co-founders and collectively, it's almost like we had a dream back like a decade ago when we started. So I have three children and I had this dream where um, I had grandkids and they would come to me and they go, granddad, granddad, your generation, you invented the internet, right? And I look at them and I'm like proud and I'm like buffing myself. And I'm like, yeah, that's true. Yes, that's super cool. And that's like arguably your generation's most important contribution to future generations, right? I'm like even taller and I'm proud. And I'm like, yeah, that's all right. And then they go, yeah, cool. So what was your contribution to that? Um, and I found myself going quiet. I'd been a consultant. I'd done television for a time, which back then in Sweden was super relevant for me because most single households in Europe, we don't believe in church that much. We're agnostic. And so the stuff that held society together very much was making TV shows. People spoke about the shows we make. Um, and so for a long time, that was sort of culturally very fulfilling for me. I felt as if I'm building the social fabric that is in parts of what people talk about in Sweden. But obviously, the paradigm television was sort of moving sort of towards something different. And I realized that sort of I wasn't contributing to my generation's biggest like achievement. And it's something that I feel very strongly, that sort of life's short, we're on this rock in the middle of nowhere, we're all going to die eventually. And what I do needs to matter. I need to feel that I was part of something big. So from a philosophical point of view, it was, it was crucial for me to understand what was happening in my generation and make sure that I was a big part of that. And so the dream goes on and I, I'm quiet for a while. And then I look at my grandkids and I go, you know what? We soundtracked the internet. That was our contribution. And it was a wild ride. Let me tell you how that went down. So there's part of, sort of that going on on an intellectual plan. In parallel, what we were seeing was that the music industry, or so let's, let me put it this way. We were seeing that the internet was changing. So initially it was all about text. And then it was going to be about pictures. This is pre-Instagram. And then we knew it was going to be about video of the simple sort of fact that video is a richer medium. So we know that that carries more information. So it's just a question of bandwidth and like time, but it's going to move towards video. And we felt very strongly because we came from television that music plays a massive role in bringing television to life because it adds feelings. So TV without music, if you don't feel anything, you stop, you tune out and you stop watching. So, so music is a huge part. But we identified that music wasn't, the current industry wasn't in a position so they could make the transition. And it was in large part had to do with how the music industry was structured. It was very much structured around representation. 
So let me give you an example. So making one track, you have somebody who's like a composer who's made that track. And then you might have a separate artist who performs that track or multiple artists. And you might have musicians to make that recording. And then you have a record label who's going to pay for that master recording. And then you have a publisher who signed the songwriters to make sure that sort of they're developing and moving in the right direction. So we're at five different entities and they all have sort of slightly different approaches. And they all need to sort of come together and say that we all represent a part of this track, but nobody holds the majority. Typically, there are multiple like songwriters. So you'll have multiple publishers, multiple record labels, multiple different entities. And as soon as sort of, they try and sort of use that music and, and, and try and use it to, say, soundtrack a TV show, as long as you're in one country, it's somewhat doable. But as soon as that show emigrates to the internet, where there are 200 countries and people want to consume it all over the world, and everyone tries and sort of have, has a part of how that system should work, there are so many different stakeholders. So by sheer numbers, it breaks down. So it's in business, it's something called like the tragedy of the commons, which is the park where everyone feels entitled to be in the park, but nobody feels they need to clean the park because it's not their responsibility. The music industry was a bit like that because it was all about representation, but nobody owned like a full track so they could take responsibility and cost and build like a long-term solution. So the entire industry was struggling like crazy. Piracy was rampant, uh, distribution didn't work. The internet wasn't getting soundtrack. It was getting muted, in fact. So music was not being allowed on YouTube and other platforms. And it was a huge problem, right? So that was sort of, that was the backdrop that sort of the internet was muted. And then we saw two other like, issues we wanted to solve. On the one hand, so we're five co-founders. Two of them are, are musicians, arguably Zach as well. So three of them are and two of us aren't. We saw that we wanted to try and help build a music industry where music could flow freely and fairly all around the world. So we want to take down those barriers and we want to try to try and see if how can we make sure that musicians start making tons of money from their craft because currently the music industry had been optimized for the middlemen they were doing quite well but the the artists were struggling and on the other hand the other problem we wanted to solve was content creators like ourselves who were at production companies we wanted to use more music in our shows in our podcasts in our games in our ads in our televisions in our dramas because music heightens the experience but we were using less music because it was so difficult to find, source, license. If you want to put it on the internet, forget about it. You had to talk to 500 people and get clearance. And oh my God, let's hope it doesn't become a success because if it's a success, everything has to be renegotiated and you're basically screwed. So these two fundamental questions weren't being addressed. There wasn't like a system where we could see that the internet was being soundtracked and that musicians were winning from this and content creators were enjoying using music. It ought to be like adding music to your content should be like the pinnacle of the creative process. It's when you sort of cross your T's and dot your I's. It's yeah. when you bring emotion and feeling and you add the drama. It was the exact opposite, right? So that was like the backdrop that we wanted to do. And also in the mix, we saw what Daniel and Martin were doing at Spotify, which was like super smart. And they'd identified a paradigm shift. People were willing to pay for access to music instead of ownership. And that was a profound shift in consumption patterns that they were a huge part of bringing to life. But people were willing to pay 100 crowns and get access to every track ever made, as opposed to buying one album and listening to it a gazillion times. And we came up with the idea that, well, we'd like to do something similar, but we'd like to soundtrack the internet. We think that we should be like a B2B version of Spotify. Called one of my brothers, Tom, who was an M&A lawyer, and we said, hey, so here's an idea for you. Uh, we want to build an alternative music industry. Step one is we want to soundtrack the internet. 
We want to make sure we don't want to invite the middlemen because we think we can do a better job given where data is at now in terms of just inviting the creators and just sort of inviting the customers. It needs to be global. So how would we go about building that music industry? And he goes a little quiet and he's like, uh, give me a million dollars, give me a year, give me these top law firms all around the world and the people who wrote the copyright law in Europe, then I might be able to tell you. End of discussion. Talk to our co-founders and we call him back and we go, okay, so give us an account number and we'll send you a million dollars. And that was like the starting point, right? Yeah. And so there is a, like a, a, there is a big document. There was a lot of work going into fundamentally understanding the entire music industry and at the core, the problems we wanted to solve. And back then, the ambition. And so that's how we started. We identified, okay, so this is how we build an alternative music industry. This is how we pay for music. This is how we build know-how, build customers, and everything was from scratch. Um, so when we started, the copyright that we wanted to sort of utilize more or less hadn't been invented. We had to take like a, a massive part in understanding so this is how it should this is how it should work. We didn't have any music, so we had to produce music. We didn't have the commercial models, so we had to invent them. We didn't have the products, so we had to build them. We didn't have the legal agreements, so we had to write them. We were very much we had nothing and we had to create everything. So that was at the core of what we wanted to do. But before we could go to the internet, we said that well we need to start somewhere. And the area that we knew really, really well was television, because we'd been making TV shows for a decade, right? And so we reached out to the broadcasters in Sweden and we said, hey, here's, here's an idea for you. We believe that you're going to be shifting from national broadcasters to global media companies. And we think that you have all the prerequisites that you need, except for one. You can't clear music to fuel your content to make it travel around the world. As soon as you do, it breaks down. And by the way, we know that because we made a majority of the hit shows for you the last 10 years. And they go, yeah, it's a huge problem So because it doesn't scale. We can't move our business to become global. And we said, we know. We've created this alternative music industry. And we're, what we're trying to sell is the idea of music should flow freely and fairly. And we want to build this ecosystem where we can fuel like the creative and commercial success of creators. And you can be a huge part of that journey. And uh, we get them super excited. We get them on board. At that point, we had 500 tracks. They were looking in hindsight now, obviously not our best work, but they were our first work and they were part of a bigger vision. And so we signed the first broadcaster within a couple of years, like I'd say two years. I was watching television in Sweden and on every single channel at the same time, I heard our music playing. So this is Sweden, right? So we yeah. only have seven, yeah. seven channels, but still, that was a big moment for us. And so I email my co-founders and, and I go, look, I think we have product market fit. I think this works. The, the vision is right. The idea is right. The timing is right. We're scaling up. I think we were at 5,000 tracks at the time. We should probably go outside of Sweden now. And so we started doing the same thing in Finland, Norway, Denmark. Successful in some countries, not all, because um, different challenges, different markets. We then went to the UK and Holland uh, because they're the biggest TV markets in arguably in the world, sort of given their size. And the idea was, if our product is good enough for the TV editors who are the most like difficult customers in the world, when we then unleash our vision onto the internet, the users who are on the internet are going to be blown away. Because if it's good enough for a primetime ITV editor who's doing like a really big show, they're going to think it's great. So we're honing in our craft, building our business and doing all of this. And then eventually I find myself flying over to the US and flying to San Bruno and meeting with YouTube because they're the 800 pound gorilla and we're at a point where we see process music stuff's working. And we're like, okay, next step, how can we soundtrack the internet? And so we, um, we start meeting YouTube. Again, connections are everything. So people smarter, more well-versed than myself make great introductions. So I, f I find myself sitting with the CEO of YouTube at the time. 
And I put on my sort of jazz hands and sort of do a dance and say, this is the vision. This is what we want to do. This is where we want to go. And he interrupts me and he says, this is amazing. This is exactly what we need because music is super difficult for us. It's crucial, but it's great. Let's do a test. And so we participate in a test and they come back and says, your hands down the best thing we've ever come across. How can we work together? And then we run into the challenge, which is they're an elephant and we're a fly in terms of size. And so even though they want to dance with us, if you envision an elephant dancing yeah. with a fly, as soon as they take a move, we're, we're like terrified we're going to get squished and crushed. Yeah. And there's no natural like balance between us because there are thousands of engineers, roadmaps, roadmaps, roadmaps. So we, we, we couldn't work directly with them because they were too big. But in the context of being over there, I found myself uh, in a car park and I see a sign which says, it says Maker Studios. And... I was curious because I've heard about these so-called multi-channel networks a couple of times. And I was quite pissed because back in the day when Trade Doubler became like a big deal in Sweden, I never understood what they did. And I felt quite dumb. I was like, yeah, they buy traffic somehow and it's attribution. And it's, it's people say it's smart, but I don't really understand what they do. And I vowed to myself, like, never again. I, I need to understand stuff. Like, that's my thing. I ask questions and I should be good at that. And so I see the multi-channel networks and I'm curious. And so I, make, I go meet those and I understand that, okay, so they're multi-channel networks. They're like a thing now. They aggregate content creators and they help them sort of flourish on YouTube because that's currently the only platform. They help them with advertising, adding services, production, cameos, like commercial deals. These are probably a really good vehicle for us to reach creators because YouTube is too big. These companies are young, they're nimble, they're... Uh, eager to learn, they should be using Epidemic and promoting us to all of the YouTubers because YouTube can't do it even though they want to. So a couple of things happen. So we come back home to Sweden, Zach and I, and we talk about the multi-channel networks and we go, this is actually quite embarrassing because Sweden is supposed to be a content nation. There should be multi-channel networks in Sweden and there's none. And so he and I, together with two other people, we found something called United Screens, which eventually goes on to become one of the bigger multi-channel networks and then eventually got sold to RTL. But the process was more profound than that because we understood the, the power of the multi-channel networks. So our foray into the internet was very much, let's become the best friends of the multi-channel networks. So we doubled down on that and that really pays off. So that's one of our like big bets and bold moves. We think this is strategically smart because they're going to be educating the entire next generation of storytellers. These people are going to evolve into being podcast creators or Netflix producers or uh, movers and shakers within the digital like content creation economy. And so fortunately, it turns out we're right. So 10 years later, we have, I think, 95% of all the world's multi-channel networks use Epidemic Sound. So we power all of these uh, content creators around the world. Our usage starts to skyrocket on the internet in general, in YouTube in particular. I think we're currently at uh, 250 million hours of music get published there every single month on YouTube alone. I think we soundtrack maybe 50% of the world's like top 100 YouTubers. So you're, you are soundtracking the internet. So we are doing it, right? <laughs> and so that was like a, a, a huge achievement for us. But but it was also interesting because we get to one of the points where you don't want to go. Um, I was listening to CTO of Salando, and this is classic Oscar. I quote people and I do it wrong. It's not on purpose, but it's classic me. And he was some, he was talking about something called like the the vision cliff. And he says, whatever you do, make sure that you don't achieve your vision. Because if you do, like you're like, okay, then what? And you like fall off the cliff. Yeah, you see a lot of people doing that when entrepreneurs that were in for the money and they get their money and they become depressed. Yeah. It's very common. Yes, I think that's very common. 
And so in our case, we had this iterative process because there were a couple of things that happened, right? And so let me phrase it this way. So step one was we said, let's soundtrack entertainment. So we did television, we did film, we did advertising, but also companies, podcasts, games. So that was arena number one for us. And we grew that business and we did it quite well. Then we moved on to the internet. So, so let's see if we can soundtrack the internet. We're now at a point where we're one of the biggest music providers in the world, depending on how you cut it, to both Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, uh, Twitch. So our music soundtracks a large portion of the internet now, which is like, wow, that's cool. Very cool. It is kind of yeah. cool. It makes me very proud. Yeah, just, uh, I, I, tell I, your grandkids. Yeah, yeah <laughs> it's, it's definitely strong. I'm going to tell my grandkids. Yeah. And then the third thing that happened was, again, back to your point about sort of the big decisions we make tend to be sort of not our own. They're serendipitous. We get a call from McDonald's a number of years ago saying that, listen, everyone is talking about you in the media space. We'd love to use music to soundtrack our restaurants, but we can't play the same music in Istanbul and in Gheda and in uh, Israel because different rights, different countries, different different problems. And we have 99 problems, but music shouldn't be one. Could you think maybe soundtrack our restaurants? Did they actually say that? No, but it's a good quote, right? <laughs> I would have loved I would have loved that. Um and so they go, but so we hear great things about you. Could you give it a go? And we we say, sure, why not? We try it out. And then they call us back after two weeks and they say, yes, so this is great. Uh, we love your service. We'd like to use you. We kicked everyone else out, actually. But our employees want to kill themselves. And we're like, oh, I'm sorry to hear that. And they go, yeah, it's your fault. And we go, really? And they go, yeah, because imagine you're you're flipping burgers for eight hours straight and the only music you hear is instrumental music. You feel as though you're in an asylum. Could you contemplate doing tracks which are vocal, where people are singing? And up until that point, we'd been soundtracking the internet. And in 99% of the cases, people just want music to heighten something else because there's a dialogue going on, there's a commercial message, or there are other sounds that need to uh, appear. And so we hadn't been uh, optimizing for that at all. But we were at a point where we said, well, it actually makes a ton of sense because that's the direction we're moving on. And we are going to be making more commercial sounding tracks. And so this is five, six years ago. And so that sparks like a, a new direction in the company where we sort of elevate our game and we take it to the next level and we start making vocal tracks with much more bands, artists, and like thinking thinking bigger, thinking more, like taking our vision a step further. That starts going really well and we find ourselves like, okay, so we're soundtracking public spaces now. That's actually very, very cool. And then the fourth thing happens, which is we're at a point where our music is playing, being played 40, 50 billion times a month across the internet. Wait, wait. With a B? Yes, with a B. Yeah. That's so cool. That's very, very big. That's right? very cool. Yeah. And we're seeing all these comments. So the world's most prominent influencers who everyone wants to be close with or have a commercial relationship with, um, we're partners of them and we help them uh, hone in on their craft. And the most common question they get on their content is, Tirias, I love your content and I love the music you use. Why can't I find this on Spotify? Or PewDiePie, it's a great sort of, I, I want to play that music when I play that game in the background. Where's the music from? I can't find it on Deezer. I can't find it on Apple. So we're getting all these thousands and eventually millions of questions about our music. And to that point, we've defined ourselves as B2B. So we're simply saying we're not in that arena. We're soundtracking entertainment, we're soundtracking the internet, and we soundtrack public spaces. That's about it. But we get a lot of ass for soundtracking sort of people's lives. People want to consume our music standalone because, like I said, the music, the quality was at a level where it's like, I want just the music. And so we go, huh, okay, so maybe we should try and see if we can soundtrack people's lives as well. So let's let's do this. Let's take a portion of our music and we'll put it up on the DSPs, so the Spotify's, the Deezer's, the Apple's, the titles. But before we do that, um, let's re-engineer our business model. 
because up until that point, we'd been buying music directly from musicians and paying them up front. And so it's a copyright transaction. And their music was a part in a video or like a German cooking show or a Hungarian ch child show for like 10 seconds. Now we were venturing into like the, the streaming world. And we said that back to our roots, what kind of, we want to build a world where music flows freely and fairly, okay? And we want to fuel the commercial and creative success of creators, okay? We're in an excellent position to achieve that because what we can do now is we can keep on paying musicians upfront, but as we accumulate royalties when our music gets consumed on the music streaming platforms, which doesn't happen on the video streaming platforms, that additional revenue, let's split that 50-50 with the musicians, which was totally unheard of because historically record labels and publishers would keep maybe 85% and the artists would get 15 right. and they wouldn't get paid up front. So we said- well, just, just to clarify, so you pay the artist, uh, you, you actually buy the music. Correct. Right. We commission it. And so say that it's either totally from our end or from their end or a combination of the yeah. both. So How many songs do you have? Over 30,000. Okay. And you've bought them all. Correct. Right. Mm -hmm. And then after you buy them and you agree to buy them and you pay the money yep. and then you make more money and then you say, well, now we're making so much money, we're actually going to give you another 50%. Correct. Huh. Mm. So that sounds pretty awesome. Yes. And I've heard, I've never read, and, and when I read interviews and stuff, that people keep asking you, so this is not fair to the artists and whatever. This sounds to me like it's a very good deal it, for it, the artists. It's an incredible deal. It's, it's a game changer. And there are a couple of reasons for that. So one of them is that royalty can be very fickle because I can guarantee that you're going to get uh, a rent uh, invoice next month but you can't guarantee royalty. And so what we wanted to do is we wanted to build a model where creators had both. So they had a guarantee when we bought a track and then a situation where there's this English expression like laugh together and cry together. So we wanted to make sure that if tracks get a lot of traction on, on music streaming platforms, that upside, we want to share that fairly and we want it to be a partnership. So we launched the idea of 50-50 sharing because we thought that's, a, that's the right thing to do. That's how we achieve our vision in terms of like fueling commercial and creative success. And it was so interesting because two things happened. When, let's first do, in this scenario, the boring part, which is the commercial part. We launch it and it's super successful because we see our music being played tens of millions and then hundreds of millions of time across all the streaming platforms in the world. So there's tons of money coming in. We take that and we split it with the artist and we send it out to every contributor and we share 50-50. And so what happens on the one hand is from an intake perspective, we see word of mouth suddenly spreading. Because if you're a creator, you're, you're hungering for two things. You have something epic to say and you want distribution. So as many people as possible need to hear what I have to say. And number two, you're looking for monetization. It's a craft. I want to be able to support myself doing what I love. And we're able to, to provide both of those. And as soon as that sort of hit sort of the creative community, word of mouth went ballistic. So we saw people... Uh, applying for Epidemic went from 100 people a month to 100 a week to 100 per day. So it was like an explosion of intake in terms of talent wanting to work with us because we'd cracked a new code of saying, look, you can get money up front and you can also get royalty. But on top of that, we have distribution because we're soundtracking TV and, and entertainment. We soundtrack the internet and now we're soundtracking public spaces and people's lives as well. So we're giving you the entire ecosystem, which no one else can do because they tend to see either some or all of these business areas as problematic, right. whereas we're not. Um, where, is the, where did the criticism come from then? Well, the, the, the critique obviously came from the encumbrance. Um, so there was this sort of outcry because in, in the larger music industry, 
and arguably, I, I guess to some extent I could understand them, suddenly epidemic popped up everywhere and we were the talk of the town. And they were saying, who the hell is epidemic? I've never heard of them. This must be fake. They must be AI. They must be fake artists. There must be some kind of scam going on here. When it was actually the opposite, right? Because we'd been soundtracking the internet for 10 years and we felt that we were vastly underrepresented on all radio stations, on all Spotify's, on all lists. Because if you look at younger generations, the way people find music now, it's not through radio predominantly, it's through the feed. Yeah. So it's through the content that you follow. Right. And we were the driving force be behind soundtracking the feed. But we had zero traction on the music streaming platforms because we, weren't, we were B2B. And so they felt that who the hell is this new kid on the block and this must be fake. And there was like a, a whole situation where fake artists blossomed up until so we took a step forward and said, no, 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 this is us. It's nothing fake. We've done it for a decade. We've soundtracked the internet. It's just we're playing catch up. Now we're going into streaming and to the other areas, which are the, the more old fashioned parts of the business, if you will. And so it was very much a, um, is it called catharsis? Like, uh, yeah, cathar catharsis. Is that when you get, catharsis. get, get, is that when you get reborn? <laughs> no, well... Yeah, is it like a cleaning yeah. process? Yeah. So, so the process was we we get in there, we get all this shit thrown at us, right? But then we get the opportunity to tell our story, just like I'm telling it to you now, and yeah. say, no, no, this is what actually went down. This is the background. This is what we're doing. This is the ambition. Here we are. And then sort of the entire this tide shifted, and people are like, wow, that's actually amazing. That's an incredibly like potent way of looking at how music could spread, and and it's very cool. So we found ourselves doing four different things, right? So soundtracking entertainment, soundtracking internet soundtracking public spaces, and then soundtracking people's public lives and sort of the music they consume. And we zoomed out and so going back to the whole um, vision. And we said that what we're trying to do now is we're trying to soundtrack the world. That's basically what we're doing. We've, we've come from a position where we're nowhere near done soundtracking the internet. It's a huge part of what we do. But we're now seeing a scenario where we believe that we can help soundtrack the world. I think that's... What's so interesting is to see how these different verticals really feed into one another. So comments on, on, on YouTube, we can drive that traffic to streaming platforms where they consume and listen more to the music. They, they want to play them when they go to their stores and where they work, they start playing that music in the store. You come in in the morning, you buy a coffee, you hear a great song, you're like, wow, I love this track. You pull out your telephone, you shazam it, find the track, it's on your Apple playlist or on your Deezer playlist, you go to work and when you're creative, you start listening to the music and it inspires you and away you go. So we've seen this incredible network effect where these different arenas start feeding into each other. And so that's what we're currently doing now is trying to grow that sort of business as much as we can through the network effects that we see between all these different things. And at the core of everything is what we do is music. So trying to tie this back to your original question, so how did I end up in music? It was a very winding road, which went through television. It took like an hour. <laughs> <laughs> um, took like an hour, and, and I'm 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 super keen to say that so I'm probably the least musical guy in in the company. I can play a little bit guitar, self defense, but it's terrible. <laughs> I don't sing. I'm good with text. Yeah. Uh, so, so I can write lyrics. Um, I'm more the guy who can. Uh, I can hear a song like twice, and then I more or less can remember it. Oh, that's very impressive. Yeah, that's been the one hamper of my vocal career. Okay, <laughs> <I> remember lyrics. <laughs> So I think, that, um, if I'm not mistaken, I think you're the 90%. So 90% of people listen to the music mm -hmm. and 10% listen to the lyrics. And there was this hilarious moment in, in the car with my kids and my wife when I realized that my oldest daughter is just like me. So she's 12. So we're listening to radio and there's this R&B song uh, playing, which is really explicit. 
but 90% of people don't listen to it. So my wife's just digging along and two of my kids are digging along and it's in English and she's 12 and her English is like really excellent. And then suddenly I see her face go like, that that did did he say what I just think he said? And I realized like she, she's just like me because I was thinking like this is not appropriate. It's super yeah. popular song, but the stuff they're saying is like wow. Yeah. And it's it, it, pretty incredible how that is a, like a carte blanche like, in this world. I know in in Sweden even more so in the US where uh. everything is so politically correct. Uh. And in these lyrics, yeah, they get away. Yeah, with you get shit away with everything. Just yeah, it, <laughs> it's it's yeah, it's sensational what you get to say. Yeah. You can have somebody super like politically correct person singing along yeah. with a song saying yeah. shit like, you yeah. know, I, yeah, I know. it's not okay. Yeah, I know. And uh, I'm, I'm a bit uh, split down the middle because on yeah. the one hand, I totally agree with that. But also art, I think sort of you're painting as, as like a great case in point. It's provocative stuff, different stuff is good because yeah. it gets your your mind going. No, I agree. And, and uh, th- if we would venture into talking about the role of art in today's society we would go on for another two yes, hours i think so too I, i'm very interested in that but uh, that's how you ended up in music that's how i ended up in music and you're so soundtracking the world at we're the soundtracking the world yeah. and it's if anything like the the red thread in everything that that zach and i has done is in uh, it's in storytelling so we're really really passionate about storytelling so zodiac was first which was television uh united screens was online video Epidemic is um, obviously music. I was on the board of Tokaboka for many years, which is a gaming company, which was a lot of fun. Zach's on the board of Perfect Day, which is a pod company as well. But they all in common share that they're focused around stories. And I think that that's also something that I found to be very, very important. That if you find something that you're passionate about and that you're good at, find different avenues into that sort of core. That's like super exciting. Yeah. Stories are magical in that sense. Mm. Something can be nothing, and you, then suddenly you start telling a story, and then people want to work at that company, and it, still it can be nothing. Yeah. And all of a sudden you have something because that story kind of becomes, yeah, you know, real for people. Yeah, I think I mean stories are by far the most potent tool or weapon, if you will, that we have in society. It trumps everything because it, it's it, it sometimes talks to logic, it talks to emotion, um, it carries. Sort of between people because people tell stories to one another. I think it's like super powerful. It, it feeds into feelings. Yeah. I think stories are yeah incredible. It transcends facts and logic somehow. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I, I named my new company Poetic just to kind of highlight that, how mm. there's a difference between the, the rational meaning of words mm. and the emotional aspect on top of that, that mm. you can't really say why you feel a certain way about something that you heard, but you do. Yeah. And it's just, you can't fight it. Yeah, I, I totally agree. I, I feel I really want to share an anecdote on that note, because three or four months ago, uh, my youngest son, who's eight, they had bring a parent date to somebody to come and uh, talk about work. And he goes like, Dad, Dad, would you, would you like to come? And I said, of course, I'd love to come. So I prepare a little bit and, I, and um, it's a room with 30 kids and they're eight years old. And they know that I do something with music, right? So I bring a speaker and I introduce myself and I say, hey kids, my name is Oscar and um, I work with feeling. And they go, feelings? I thought you work with music. Can you work with feelings? And I go, yeah, yeah, no, I I work with feelings. And the way we do that is we soundtrack things. And I'm going to play something for you and let's see, sort of, let me know what comes top of mind. I'm looking at your Yoda now. And so the the first thing I play is the intro to Star Wars. And it takes like three seconds, like da 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 da, and so stop playing it. And immediately, like twenty five hands go into the air, 
And they go, good, bad, mum, dad, popcorn, scary, fun, Darth Vader, Jabba the Hutt, Savlaya, dancing around, lightsabers, and they start moving. And I go down the list and I play like five, six, seven songs, which predominantly are soundtracks, and it's frozen and it's all kinds of things. And there are so many immediate emotions that pop up in people's minds because there's so much connotation. And music really carries feeling. And so I say that, so, so this is what we work with. So we soundtrack things. And the reason we soundtrack things is because it not only creates emotion and feelings, it ties them in. And so when you hear that music again, it unleashes all these feelings. And life without feeling is quite uninteresting. So we're, at, we're, we're making life better because we want to add feeling to everything. And then I continue and I say, I bet I can make you think of a certain time of year. And they're like, no. And I start playing one of our Christmas tracks. Like, 30 hands go up and I'm like, you're thinking about spring? And they're like, no! I was thinking about autumn? No! And everyone goes, so this is what we do. Right. So it's almost like music is a battery of emotions. You can charge it and yeah. then you can release it somewhere else. It, it, I, I 100% agree with that. And it's it's like a, um, I struggle to find it like a good, um, good comparison. So this is a somewhat shitty one, which is classic Oscar as well. <laughs> um, but in, in the US, um, when they try and sell stuff to you through TV shop uh, or they want to encourage you to call a phone number, I'm terrible with numbers. I can't remember my own phone number. I have a tough time with that. But in the US, they cracked it because they understand how the brain works and they go, call this number, 1-800-SUE-ME. Right. Yeah. And so you understand how the brain works and you change numbers for something else. But you remember that. And so I think that to some extent, the way that sort of music works is it, it's... It's a way for the brain to, you can't keep all the emotions alive all the time, but you can tie them into music. So when you hear a track, I might play a Depeche Mode song and immediately you're like 16, uh, you're in this field, uh, there was this uh, relationship just broken down and, and you can feel all these things that you never tap into in a normal day. Yeah. But music is the key that helps your brain get into that whole set of feelings and you're in a totally different place. Yeah. Yeah. To some extent, that really fascinates me. That's like a big part of stories as well, because stories yeah. can do that to bring you back to places. It's fascinating. I never thought of it that way, but it's it's a it's a, that's exactly what it is. It's mm. kind of some kind of emotional storage place <laughs> uh, in a file format. Exactly. That is Wh music, which works for the brain. Yeah. And I think the crazy thing is, it seems as though like the hard drive, the RAM, like we can store enormous amounts of that specific data because we can add new tracks, new things, new th um, songs and new emotions. And the old ones don't necessarily disappear. I can still hear like, these are the blue album and I'm back in Norsvegen here in Bromma and sort of, I can see the color of my walls. I remember what my bed looked like. I remembered my stereo, how it opened downwards. Yeah. And th I, some specific tracks immediately trigger like a hundred different emotions and feelings. That's like the power of music. That's yeah. why I love what we do. This has been fantastic. I could sit around talking to you for another, I, This for, for one, this episode will need to be split into two okay. because it's too long for one, but it's <laughs> fantastic. I would love to do like a, a series with you because yeah. we have so much to talk about. I, I agree. And I love this. This is a lot of amazing stuff in this episode. Thank you so much. So maybe we should just uh, pause here, so to say, you know, until next time when I see you and we keep recording the next 10 episodes. And... Uh, I w I'm just so happy and thankful that you uh, came back to Brahma and uh, visited me in my house to uh, talk to me about this. Walter, I'm incredibly grateful. I'd love to come back. And it's, it's a pleasure to chat with you. 
Thank you so much for listening to this first two-part premiere of The Walter Show. And I'm looking so much forward to bringing you a new episode every Monday with a new conversation with a great entrepreneur from the Nordics. And I'll see you again next Monday for a very special guest that I've prepared for you. And in the meantime, hit subscribe and don't forget to rate this podcast on iTunes if you think it's good. That helps a lot to keep this going. So thank you again and I will see you next week.